Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 258, Marie Brennan, A Natural History of Dragons. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) I like writing, I like reading, I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. (laughs) And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi Public. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. I'm excited. Tor has been so generous to us. Last week we had the Eternal Sky Trilogy as a giveaway, and this week we have another awesome giveaway. They are offering three copies of the second book in Marie Brennan's series, uh, The Memoirs of Lady Trent. Uh, That book is called The Tropic of Serpents. And I have to make an aside. I'm sorry. I really need to get better at learning the titles of the books during my interviews. So I've learned it by now. So that book is The Tropic of Serpents. And so they're offering three copies of that or two sets of both A, Hist- a Natural History of Dragons and The Tropic of Serpents. Uh, it is only to U.S. and Canada. In order to win, all you have to do is sign up to our newsletter There's links on our website, in this show post, um, on our Facebook page. I also want to mention, John has a steampunk book called The Mechanicals that is free today, uh, Tuesday, May 6th only. So be sure to check that out. I think it's only a couple bucks anyway, but free is good. And we want to support John. We appreciate all his help on this show. This giveaway for... Marie's Dragon Books will go through next Monday at midnight. Trying to get on a schedule here where I post a podcast on Tuesdays. That's the plan. Um, So you'll know you have until then to sign up for the newsletter. Thanks again so much to all of you who listen and subscribe. We really appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. We have two people on the line today. First, as a co-host, one of our contributors, John Dodds. Say hello, buddy. Hi again. It's great to be back, Tim. It's great to have you. We had John on the show for our K. Kenyon interview, and he did a fantastic job. So I'm excited to introduce our second guest today, Marie Brennan. Say hi, Marie. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, likewise. So Marie is a former academic with background in archaeology, anthropology, and folklore, which she now puts in a rather cocky use in writing fantasy. She has just released her second book in a series by through Tor. I'm not sure. What's the name of the series? 
The series itself is The Memoirs of Lady Trent. Ah, okay. So The Memoirs of Lady Trent. Uh, the Natural History of Dragons is the first book. And the second one is, I haven't read that one yet. What's that one called? The Tropic of Serpents. The Tropic of Serpents. Very good. And this is a an awesome book about dragons and uh, the memoir of our young journalist who is um, going after them. I am excited. I would like you, if you could, one of the best introductions to this series is found in your preface, uh, and I've given you that that section if you'd like to read it for us. Sure. Uh, so yeah, this is from the preface of A Natural History of Dragons, and the preface in question, for those who haven't seen the book, is uh, Isabella, the narrator, talking to her imagined audience for her memoir. So she says, Be warned, then. The collected volumes of this series will contain frozen mountains, fetid swamps, Hostile foreigners, hostile fellow countrymen, the occasional hostile family member, bad decisions, misadventures in orienteering, diseases of an unromantic sort, and a plenitude of mud. You continue at your own risk. It is not for the faint of heart, no more so than the study of dragons itself. But such study offers rewards beyond compare to stand in a dragon's presence. <laughs> I, I was taken back when I, when I read that part of the preface, because who doesn't love a story about standing in a dragon's presence? <laughs> Um, so, very awesome. This is a different book than I have read, and um, I just wanted to think, as I'm, as a writer, I'm starting a new series, and, you know, we get all these ideas about you know, how awesome this story can be, and then we think of, you know, how we're going to tell the story. And so, I'm curious what your thought process was on developing uh, the story about someone who gets to stand in a, in a dragon's presence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was something, um, well, the, the inspirations for this were two things. One was the uh, the dragonology. I guess there's books, but I knew it from a, a calendar that someone had gotten me, um, which has sort of the conceit of, oh, it's this field guide to dragons and talking about them in, in different parts of the world and how you go about studying them. And also Todd Lockwood's artwork work for the um, third edition Dungeons and Dragons book called the Draconomicon. And it had, his artwork had like skeletal drawings of uh, dragons, like diagrams. And the book itself talked about, oh, the dragon life cycle, etc. So these gave me the notion of dragons, you know, I actually thought of it, I, I went back and forth between should this be a novel or should I run it as a role-playing game? Um, and the idea for the role-playing game was that you were there to study the dragons instead of to kill them and take their stuff. Um, and so the, the notion of this being driven by scientific inquiry. That's really where it started. Um, I chose to make the dragons, uh, you know, not sentient, intelligent, magical creatures, but rather a part of the environment, because if they'd been sentient, it wouldn't have so much been like biology and natural history as anthropology, uh, except with dragons. Um, and though I, I was an anthropologist, I wanted to approach it in a more kind of biological sense. Um, so yeah, the entire concept really started with, okay, what sort of person would be running around and studying dragons? And uh, I uh, kind of gravitated to the Victorian period because that sort of thing, that's when you first had people really kind of going out and, and doing this kind of work. It started a little earlier than that. But if you set it in an early time, then instead of it being, okay, we've already figured out the basic stuff, and now your researcher is focusing on some very specialized question, you can do kind of the grand discoveries and the big picture. Um, as for personality, uh, it was kind of ironic. For about five minutes when I started playing with this, Isabella was actually named Victoria instead. And then I thought, that name doesn't fit. And so I renamed her Isabella. 
And it wasn't until after that that I found out about a real life woman named Isabella Bird, who was a 19th century um, like traveler and travel writer who went to Japan and Hawaii and the Rocky Mountains and a variety of other places. And yeah, her name was Isabella Bird. Well, so my protagonist isn't named after her, but as soon as I found out about her existence, I thought, oh, well, that's kind of perfect. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking, John, this could go with your question on the alternate world aspect. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, funnily enough, um, Maria, as you were talking, um, I I suddenly realized that maybe my, my uh, you know, some of the things I connected to the book um, – uh, are genetic for me because my, my father was born in the same town that uh, the famous explorer David Livingstone came from. He who uh, was greeted in at the head of the Nile or wherever it was by the, by the phrase Dr. Livingstone, I presume. But uh, what I wanted to ask you actually was somehow you've, you've kind of skirted around most of the usual kind of typical fantasy tropes. You know, uh, a lot of them... Uh, the George Martin one included uh, are based around a sort of medieval heroic model, but you've chosen um, a Victorian type of period. So I'm curious as to know, well, you've told told us some of the answer to that about kind of uh, Victorian women and so on, but was were there other things or other books that inspired that approach rather than the kind of medieval type of uh, fantasy that's more commonplace at the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, there's been kind of an upswing of, of Victorian styled stuff in the last oh, five to 10 years, I suppose. Um, you know, you get steampunk and various things that are kind of in that vein. Uh, so you've got like Sherry Priest doing uh, her like, you know, Bone Shaker and those novels. You've got Gail Carriger. You've got Naomi Novik doing the Napoleonic War. Um, so I think there's been a lot more recently of people looking past these sort of vaguely medieval renaissance-ish, usually not kind of hewing very closely to either of those periods. And I heard a fascinating suggestion at one point. I don't remember who said this or I would credit them, but they were wondering for Tolkien in the time period that he was living, um, the kind of like rural, uh, you know, bucolic English life that that he uh, wrote about, especially with the hobbits and such, was for him kind of... um, the, the past that had existed a little bit before um, his own lifetime, right? Uh, you know, certainly he was drawing on some very uh, medieval and, and like pagan Norse, et cetera, models for his stories. But especially when you look at the Shire and such, it was this pre-industrial world that wasn't his lifetime, but was kind of just within memory of his lifetime. And yep. I wonder if that's part of why we're getting so much Victorian stuff now is that for people of my generation, that, you know, industrialization and the, the sudden accelerating pace of change and mechanization, that's the stuff that is not our lifetime, but is kind of within memory of it. I don't remember who said that. It's not an idea that's original to me, but it's kind of fascinating because it does suggest that you know, <laughs> go on another like 50 years or something and you might start having uh, like, I don't know, a lot of 1930s Dust Bowl fantasy or something. I don't know what. Um, <laughs> yeah, but certainly. Uh, um, oh, go ahead. No, no, I, I just could say, yes, I, I agree with you. And, and, and of course, um, a lot of the, the, the writers from kind of uh, uh, Victorian and pre-Victorian were writing about periods that predated what they were the, their own times too. Um, particularly yeah. the earlier writers, they were writing about stuff, you know, um, uh, about you know a hundred years previously. So uh, that's probably in that 
vein or tradition, if you like, in any case. And I, I think part of it, too, is um, the, uh, in a sense, why fantasy is so popular at the moment is because a lot of the things that we regard as science fictional, um, even 20 or 30 years ago, have now come to pass. So people are looking yeah. elsewhere for their action stories or romances or whatever you care to call them. Yeah, and I also think, um, you know, the, the Victorian kind of setting and, and the steampunk sort of mode, um, I think it's interesting the ways that some of those stories end up kind of challenging the distinction that used to be relatively clear cut between fantasy and science fiction of, oh, one has magic, the other has, you know, rivets, um, and that those things are very separate. And as you get into that kind of industrialized period, people are doing lots of interesting stuff with saying, well, you know, do these things have to be separate? Does having magic in the story have to mean not having technology or else it's urban fantasy or something? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And um, I mean, we kind of touched on this uh, subject when uh, we were speaking to Kay Kenyon about her, her book, um, A Thousand Perfect Things, and how uh, on one hand it was kind of fantasy, on the other hand it was kind of somewhat science fictional um, as well. So I think uh, one thing that you seem to do in, in your book, there's almost a scientific rigor that goes into the, the mm -hmm. whole notion of uh, studying dragons. Um, and the, you know, I could, I could picture the dragons down to the, you know, down to their pinion feathers or whatever you call it, you know, uh, and that, that level of detail is, I would say science fictional rather than fantasy. Fantasy tends to skirt over that kind of level of rigor, if you like, I think. Um, and I wondered if you thought that's where some of the science science stuff goes in your books. Yeah, well, I would say um, I would actually disagree with the notion that that fantasy, um, you know, is lacking in, in rigor per se. But I think some of it is the difference is more the mentality, um, the notion that you imp approach things, uh, you're or rather approach trying to understand things through a very empirical kind of method of we will gather data, we will analyze data, and from this we will know the world. Um, I've actually uh, used a term sometimes. This is a, a term other people have used and they've uh, employed it to mean about six different things. So I have to specify what I mean when I say it. But I've talked sometimes about hard fantasy as kind of analogous to hard science fiction. And for me, when I attach the word hard to a story, what I mean is that it's interested in how things work and why. So for hard science fiction, this might be, oh, this story is very much driven by physics and how does physics work and what is that effect going to be? Whereas for hard fantasy, it's usually more um, like sociological in nature. Um, you get things like uh, Alia de Borard has her, um, uh, oh, I, f I forget what the name of the series is now. Um, but uh, she's got a, a series of Aztec murder mystery fantasies, basically. Um, yeah. And the second book in that series, actually, I loved the fact that it started off with the revered speaker of the Aztec uh, society dying. And the ideology around this was that the revered speaker is the one who basically keeps the star demons out of the world and keeps them from coming down to devour reality. And when the revered speaker dies, that protection actually goes away. And the book starts with the main character looking up at the sky and going, oh, crap, because um, suddenly the yeah. stars seem <laughs> a little bit closer. And so yeah. treating the the kind of metaphysics of the, the setting as being real and thinking through why they work the way they do. So that's all by way of me saying that for me, it's not as much about the rigor, per se, as just saying what are 
the tools and what are the things that you're looking at that uh, you know is going to distinguish the approach that I'm using in these books from something I might use elsewhere. That Isabella is very convinced and not wrong about the fact that by going out and gathering data on dragons and analyzing it in a rational way, she can learn things about how they work. And it's definitely true that a number of people have responded to the books by saying that they are kind of part fantasy, part science fiction, or some people read them as more science fictional because of that. I absolutely um, appreciate what you're saying. I, I, I agree with that. And I think that, um, you know, like uh, you mentioned Naomi Novik, you know, how she has got the, uh, all that stuff about the Napoleonic Wars with dragons and that, that mm-hmm. kind of uh, she knows about the seafaring and um, the, the, the structure of the, the kind of the, 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 the naval structures and all that sort of thing. And that very much comes across in, in your book. Um, I, I actually listened to the, the audio book version which uh, and uh, I loved it so I haven't haven't actually read a print version or a Kindle version mm-hmm. at this point but I, 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 I it, it felt very vivid and very real to me but one thing that I wanted to ask you sort of leading on to the question because I want to hand you over to Tim in a minute is talking about f- fantasy I suppose in double inverted commas one of the things that's very common for fantasies is um you know they they they're big fat trilogies um uh and uh you are one of the people who is the exception to the rule and uh Tim Lebon is another one he did a duology of all things uh, dusk and dawn which were terrific as well but you you're doing a quintology would you call it that and i thought that was uh, quintet, kind of an unusual yeah. a quintet a quintet so yeah. what was your thinking in putting together a quintet rather than a trilogy or some other shape uh, well, so technically, I haven't even written a trilogy yet. My first books were a duology, and my second series was a quartet, and now I'm doing a quintet. Um, <laughs> so I appear to just be kind of skating around hitting every number but three. Um, yeah. And really, I I think it was always planned to be a five-book series from the start. Um, my original contract was for the first three books, and those have been doing well, so now I have a contract for the remaining two. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. Some of it was just going, okay, well, let's not assume trilogy. Let's see what number feels uh, more appropriate. Um, Mm. Because I do think a lot of times things turn into trilogies just because we are very accustomed to that structure. It's very familiar. Um, But I knew I wanted each book to cover kind of a separate expedition. And if there were only three, that wouldn't be a lot. It wouldn't give me a lot of room to show Isabella changing over time and to show her research. You know, the things she does in later books build on the things she's discovered in the previous ones. So by doing more than three, I had more room to get variety in the places that she goes and to show that what she achieves isn't done overnight. It's done over a period of years with a lot of work going Hmm. into it. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, having having the mature or old—I don't know what what age Isabella is when she starts writing her memoirs—but but I thought that was a, a fabulous uh, device, um, having her as a kind of a, an older woman and then uh, talking about herself as a as a younger woman. Um, I'm going to hand you over to Tim. So John got the audiobook experience, and I was blessed with the print book experience. One of the things I loved about that is 
every so often there's this amazing picture by Todd Lockwood. Now, I mean, you have the story that's pushing you on to read further, but then you also have this idea of, you know, if I read another chapter, I'm going to get to see another dragon. And uh, so, <laughs> so that's really cool. I, I almost feel bad for John because he didn't get that experience yet, but uh, that's okay. He seems to really like the audiobook too. So Kate Redding yeah, did a fantastic I, job reading. Oh, I'll tell you something, Kate Redding is amazing. I'd be happy to listening listen to her reading the telephone directory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's she's great, and she she put your book across beautifully. She's absolutely fa- fabulous. I'm wondering if you could talk to, and this is kind of a combinational question, so pick and choose how you want to start it. But um, I'm interested in how you start our introduction to the character, and I wonder if you could also flavor that in with this idea of discipline with a capital D uh, as you stated it in your blog post about the epic story structure. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, with the character, I will say, um, yeah, actually uh, the, the previous mention of doing this um, as a memoir format with the, uh, the character looking back retrospectively, um, that is probably the single best decision I made in developing the entire series. It just kind of clicked into place as I was playing around with the idea, just kind of, you know, noodling around and setting down some words and uh, the minute I hit that voice and especially the the kind of retrospective flavor to it this was one of those cases where a character basically leapt full-blown into my mind like you know Athena from the head of Zeus um because it she did kind of just immediately exist in my mind as a person and being able to do it in the memoir format um actually does allow me to uh, uh, impose shape on the story a little bit more distinctly than I might have done if it was being done as a more conventional first-person narration where it's not later in life I'm telling this story and I know I'm telling my story so I can be self-reflexive, but rather just you're in the character's head. Um, because Isabella can make references to stuff that will happen later, or she can make asides that are commenting on what she did at the time and how she feels about it now. And that's actually been fascinating to play with as a writer and has really helped make the character come across very vividly, I think. With regard to the discipline aspect, um, I do think what I'm doing here isn't quite the kind of thing that I discussed in that post. I still haven't attempted what I discussed in that post, which for those who haven't read it, uh, this was after I had done a, a reread of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, which I had read when I was in high school and had not picked up in years, but I wanted to reread and refresh my memory before the final books came out. So I decided, why not blog my way through it? Um, and I was talking about what happened to the series as it went along, uh, especially in like terms of structure and pacing and so on, uh, and what caused that and what the consequences of it were. So one of the things I said is that to work at a scale larger than a trilogy and to have it actually keep a good shape, you do kind of need to be disciplined. You need to say, it's going to be this many books or some other kind of guideline and then stick to that. Because I firmly believe that saying, okay, I'm going to write a trilogy. Well, maybe it'll be four books. Well, maybe it'll be six books. Well, maybe it will be eight books. Doesn't end well. Um, <laughs> you know, you can still do some good things along the way, but you're, you're going to create a lot of problems for yourself. Um, but what I recommended in that post is to a certain extent what I am doing with this series, even though... I was talking in that post about doing one continuous story that is broken up into volumes. Um, Whereas with this particular series, it is more episodic. It is, here's this expedition, here's what happened during it, you know, the end. So if you pick up a later book and you've missed the earlier ones, you're not in the middle of the story. You're kind of entering a new episode of it. Um, 
But even so, when I set out to say, okay, this is a five book series, I knew going into it where Isabella would go in each book. And I had at least a vague notion of what would be the big kind of scientific thing that she would do in that book. Um, and these were kind of, uh, I think the metaphor I used in my post was, you know, little pegs hammered into the ground that I could use for navigation saying, okay, I need to get from here to there. How do I do that? And how do I do it within the confines of a single book rather than wandering off into, uh, into extras? Um, so I, I have actually been following my own advice a little bit, even though I'm not applying it to quite the scale of thing that, say, Robert Jordan was doing. Are you an outliner or fly by the seat of your no. pants? Yeah, not an outliner in the sense that usually people mean. Um, I <laughs> There's a, a kind of smart phrase I tend to use, which is, I reject your false dichotomy. Um, it's not that you are an outliner or by the seat of your pants. <laughs> right. It's a spectrum. Yes. Um, and so, you know, going into a book... Um, I will have some notion of, you know, there's a particular scene that I think would be cool. So, okay, that's a peg hammered into the ground. What is the context of that scene? Why does it happen? I have no idea. But I want it to happen. Um, there's actually a bit, uh, uh, for, for those who have read The Tropic of Serpents, The Great Cataract. Basically, that entire segment of the book where Isabella goes to this waterfall and, and the stuff that ends up happening there was entirely because I saw a photo of a place called Iguazu Falls that is in... Uh, I think it's Argentina, though I don't remember for certain right now. Um, but it's this amazing waterfall. And I saw a picture of it and thought, I need to put that in a book. Okay, it's going in this book. What's going to happen there? I don't know, but we're going to have a waterfall in this book because it's awesome. Um, so I'll put in a few things like that, or I'll know that there's uh, certain character developments I want to have or something. And I kind of fling those out there on the path ahead of me and then find my way from one to the next. So, you know, it's a little bit of an outline in a sense, but I am not like certain friends of mine who say, okay, I have my chapter by chapter outline and I know exactly what's going to happen. That isn't me. I have to say uh, that I, I feel really, really reassured to hear you uh, talk that way, Marie, because um, I'm I'm pretty, pretty much, well, I heard someone called it intuitive. So that's how I describe how I write too. Um, and, uh, uh, but I, I, I kind of find that uh, sometimes I'll be so far and then like I put down, I can't remember what you said, like a marker or something. And then mm -hmm. I might do some reverse, reverse engineering um, to, to kind of, put a, a more of a structure around it but I like what one writer said um, which is a, a, a kind of a, my bible which is if I don't want to know what happens next nobody else will either <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean there I I do want there to be space for discovery because usually my best ideas are the ones that I don't see coming until they're coming out of my fingers um, but it does help to have some sense of okay well if I know that I want this to be the discovery that's going to happen in this book, then I need to, like you said, reverse engineer and say, what needs to happen before then for that to make sense? So I'd like to talk a little bit about Isabella as a character. And I'm curious if you could maybe kind of describe her as we meet her and why you chose her as that specific type of character, maybe both for theme for the series and for the types of uh, growth that she'll go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so she's she starts out as a, a young woman in a society that is very much based on Victorian England. And, um, you know, some of that is because uh, characters are more interesting if they have challenges to face. And so a young woman trying to do this kind of thing faces different challenges and frequently more challenges than a young man would in that kind of society. Um, and 
in the course of researching the Onyx Court books, since they're historical uh, fantasy set in London, I had come across a lot of stuff, especially as I got into researching like intellectual history, um, the ways in which women did participate in that and did contribute to it that a lot of people actually aren't aware of. Um, they certainly weren't contributing on equal terms with men because there were obstacles in their path, but they were a lot more present and engaged than the kind of standard image of history assumes. And so I wanted to write about somebody like that and show um, the way those kinds of things did operate. People like Isabella Bird or uh, Mary Kingsley, who was a traveler who went to West Africa, um, I wanted to talk about somebody like that. Um, but I also did try to aim, and based on reader responses so far, it seems to have been working pretty well, for someone who was more like the historical reality of that sort of person rather than the kind of... Um, uh, I don't want to I don't want to say cliche in the sense that uh, it seems negative, but it just in the sense of like common um, the version that shows up in fiction where it's the oh, I don't care what society thinks and I'm just going to go my merry way. Well, Isabella does kind of care at times. She tells herself that she doesn't. But the fact of the matter is there are consequences for the life that she lives um, and she doesn't just get to say, well, because I don't care about these things, they won't affect me. They do affect her. Um, so there were a number of decisions I made in the course of writing her story that were me going, well, what's realistic here? And then how do I tell my story within that? Um, for example, the fact that she does actually get married early on in the first book because, well, that's what happened most of the time. And so it's not, oh, I'm not going to get married until I've done all the things I want to do. It's how do I get married and use that to do what I want to do? Um, you know, kind of working with that rather than just completely avoiding it. And there's other uh, examples of that I could name, but some of them would be spoilers, so I won't. <laughs> I, I think, uh, uh, yes, you you handled that, all of those components uh, really rather brilliantly um, uh, because the, 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 uh, portraying a woman of that period uh, in that mode um, uh, is potentially treacherous. You could, you could end up veering into, you know, a slight cliche or uh, common assumptions um, and you you manage you, you at no point do you do that and she's she's a very complex uh, character uh, and uh, like you say she does question herself sometimes so on the one hand she's veering towards this kind of uh, feisty I'm going to go my uh, my own way on the other hand she's thinking well hang on a minute um, there are other issues here to to, to consider um, and I, there was one thing about that that I wanted to uh, touch on uh, with you, Marie, which is um, one of the things that I, I loved about the book was how you have a, a, almost like a, a slow start, but a, a good slow start. I mean, it's it's very rich with character development and kind of societal tensions, and but also there there are elements of like the comedy of manners and uh, and all of that kind of. I kind of found it quite disarming because when the dramatic action comes a bit later on, it's somehow more dramatic because of the stuff that went before. Were you conscious of having like two halves like that? Were you, did you deliberately think, oh, well, I'll start with a slow pace and have bits of, you know, sort of almost like light comedy here and there and serious stuff of just about relationships and the society. And then we get, then we meet the dragons or did it just evolve organically that way? Um, it was mostly shaped by the fact that this is being framed as a memoir because, you know, for it to be a memoir, it kind of needed to have the here was my childhood and my youth that will, you know, set the stage for the things I did as an adult. Um, 
but then at the same time, I didn't want the first book to be entirely about Isabella's life before she actually got out there and did things involving dragons. Though I suppose technically in her childhood, there are dragon-related things, because there are the Sparklings and the Wolf Drake and so on. Um, but yeah, it does have, the first book does have a bit of a division like that, because there's a chunk of time that is spent establishing who Isabella was before she began her career, per se. I didn't specifically plan for a tonal shift there, but it's kind of the inevitable consequence of approaching it that way. Um, and uh, I, I do like what you said about, um, you know, it seeming more dramatic because that's actually an approach that I really like when I encounter it in other people's stories of using kind of, um, you know, funnier, more lighthearted stuff kind of as the, the like jab that sets up the roundhouse punch for the drama. Absolutely. When I come across that in stories, the the drama is more dramatic to me because it wasn't all gloom and doom leading up to it. It was ha 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 wham. <laughs> you know, when they yep. can take you by surprise like that, it's great. Absolutely. And it, it completely took me that way. And, you know, there were I have to say there were moments in the early part of the book that I laughed out loud. You know, there was a there was some wonderful bit where she's talking about her friends who are, you know, the, the other women in her society, young women, 18, 19 year olds um, who are, you know, almost like slightly flighty. Uh, they like their shopping or the equivalent of shopping. And uh, she talks about her friends being she didn't use the word horsey, but, you know, liking horsey horses. And she says something to the effect that um uh, uh, she quite likes horses, but they have one major pitfall in that they're, they're lacking wings or something to that yeah. effect. And I thought that was very, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the uh, the fondness for horses is certainly a thing that uh, isn't just a, a trope of today, but was also true in, you know, yesteryear. And so I liked yeah. working that in there. But yeah, Isabel is like, horses are great, but, you know, really, things with wings are more awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That might be a good place for us to ask about your your researching process with, I mean, your academic background. How how much did you do before you started writing and how much of it was uh, spur of the moment uh, as needed type of thing? Um, well, it's some of both, uh, as you might expect. Mm -hmm. um, probably the most substantial beforehand stuff is uh, two elements. One is I actually have a kind of basic climatology textbook on my shelf, which I read a chunk of, um, not the whole thing, but <laughs> dipped into bits and pieces as needed. Um, when I was uh, writing the first book, or actually kind of before I got into it, um, and then a, again a bit before the second book, because if I'm going to have my protagonist studying these animals in their natural environment, then I need the natural environment to make something resembling sense. Um, you know, maybe if you dug into it in detail, you would start going, well, but the ocean currents wouldn't be flowing in the right way for that to happen. But readers aren't really going to do that. So I just need it to not look fake. Um, so there was that kind of research. And then for each book, um, well, with the second book, for example, she goes to a region that in cultural and, and somewhat environmental terms, I based on uh, West Africa and Central Africa. And so... I did a chunk of reading beforehand for that of saying, okay, well, let me read up on those societies and see what kinds of things are there with social structure and religion and government and so on. And then that way I knew what the context was that what my story would be taking place in and that would shape the story. But then as I'm going along, the third book actually, which I'm, I'm working on revising right now, it's called Voyage of the Basilisk. And so she's on a ship, uh, as you might expect, and at one point is looking at like sea serpents and I found myself about to put in a line there about uh, the relationship or the possible relationship between sea serpents and, and other dragons. And I thought, well, would the number of vertebrae be different? I'm pretty sure that's the kind of characteristic that is 
fairly fundamental and doesn't actually change very easily. But I don't know, it's, you know, we've got X number of vertebrae, but then how about something like a giraffe? So I go looking up giraffe vertebrae at 2 a.m. I'm not making this up. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm in the middle of writing this scene and I'm like, I need to know about giraffe vertebrae. Uh, And it turns out they're fascinating because they have the same number of neck vertebrae as we do, even though their necks are like half a mile long. And the way they make that happen is awesome. Um, (laughs) But there's a lot of spot checking of things like that. Um, A natural history of dragons when they're... um, when she and, and Jacob and Elias are going off and, and finding the cave, I thought, okay, uh, rock climbing. They don't exactly have fancy rock climbing gear. Well, how does that work when you don't have all your pythons and the rest of the junk? And so I was reading about Victorian rock climbing. Um, so there are, is a lot of spot checking as I get into a scene and go, oh, well, I need to know about this rather specialized topic for the moment. I'm curious what the what the main conflict is uh, going in part two going on of A Natural History of Dragons. Because we were talking before about how there's a, a tonal change a little bit. Okay, so think... the, the latter half. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is, the, the very uh, brief description of the setup is that they arrive in uh, a country named Vistrana, which I based uh, partially on Romania. Um, and so it, it's got kind of the, uh, you know, cold isolated mountain village, suspicious peasants kind of thing going on. Um, and because Vistrana is actually sort of a client state to the neighboring uh, nation of Bolskevo, which is based on Russia, there's this boyar, this like Russian overlord who uh, rules the area. Um, and the guy who was sort of his like, um, you know, agent in the village who was supposed to be the person like welcoming the the party of naturalists and, and helping them out has gone missing. Uh, so you've got a bit of a mystery going on there. And uh, the dragons themselves are kind of behaving unusually in that they've started attacking people, which most of the time they they don't do as much. Um, And uh, it's true both in in this book and actually uh, what I'm about to say describes the conflict in a number of the books, which is that Isabella finds out she can't really go someplace to study dragons and not deal with the people. Um, that, you know, dragons are a part of the world that people live in, and people are a part of the world that dragons live in. So uh, there's definitely a running thing in the series of she goes somewhere to study dragons and uh, ends up getting caught up in not just things going on with the dragons, but also having to do with how the people there are relating to them and interacting with them. Because, like, A, I think that's a, a very true representation of how we tend to deal with our environment anyway. You know, we don't just leave it over there to do its own thing. We, we mess with it. And also, it's important to me on, on kind of a philosophical level because it sends a very different message and not one I want to be doing if Isabella just comes waltzing in and only pays attention to the dragons and ignores the people around her. You know, I am trying to write about a society that is kind of colonialist, like, uh, you know, Scareland is not this wonderfully enlightened utopia. But at the same time, I want to be... Uh, kind of showing the problems with that. And so by getting Isabella enmeshed in local events, I'm, you know, saying, hey, you can't just kind of say, I don't care about the people. I'm only here to look at the stuff around them. I, I think one of the things that um, that illustrate that or puts um, a microscope on that is her relationship with her ladies' maid, uh, D- Dagomira, um, who Dagmira. I absolutely, I who I love as a character. She's absolutely brilliant. Um but Dagomira sort of is a mirror to her society and she's continually challenging Isabella about her attitudes and, you know, who, you know, it's almost like who the hell do you think you are kind of thing. But at the same time, 
she's supportive and also a friend, but also she's a challenger, as good friends should be. Um, so I think that's a really good, good, you know, what you've said about that, those dynamics in the second half of the book uh, uh, come, come across um, really powerfully. And by using, you know, Dagomira as a, as, a, as a kind of mirror character, I think that actually points up some of the things that you express in broader terms in the action scenes as well. And, uh, you know, all the stuff about the bandits and, um, you know, uh, her, her, her interactions with, the, with the, the, the society at large in this alien country she's in. It's, it's really fantastically well done. Thank you. Um, I had a lot of fun writing Dagmira because, yeah, she... She basically has very. She's not impressed by Isabella. Um, you know, no. Isabella comes in being all like, "I must establish appropriate relations with my lady's maid." And Dogmira is basically like, "Yeah, no," um, because yes, yeah, I just the, pic- the things that. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. Go on. I'm just going to say I, I pictured uh, Dagmira, Dagmira rolling her eyes all the time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much They're doing going, the oh, uh, whatever serious? the Australian equivalent. Would be. <laughs> yeah, as if she's going oh. seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, fundamentally, there's a lot of things that Isabella doesn't know and is very naive about. Um, And, uh, you know, I tried to make her the sort of person who is willing to learn from her mistakes. But even then, um, you know, there's places where, especially because of the retrospective narration, Isabella uh, in her later life is criticizing things that she did in her earlier life. But that isn't necessarily even um, the full critique, right? I, I think it's entirely possible and sometimes entirely justified for the reader to look at the things that she still isn't calling into question and going, yeah, no, that's still not sufficient. Um, you know, kind of on a number of fronts, actually, if uh, if the reader walks away from the story questioning those things themselves, then I kind of feel like I've done something good there. I'm like, yay, that's what I want you to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one element, immediately springs to mind uh, is uh, uh, is Isabella's attitude to um, dragon killing um, and you know as, a, as, a, as an animal lover myself um, I'm, I, I'm thinking oh do I agree with this or do I not agree with it and you know and, and some of her justifications are understandable but at the same time it's quite a it's quite a challenging proposition that you you present in that in that respect. Yeah, it's, um, you know, she's obviously working under different circumstances than we have nowadays, you know, when she's going and hunting these dragons, um, they're generally not an endangered species or something. So losing one or two of them is not uh, quite the same thing as it would be if you went and shot, you know, like a a tiger or something like that now. Um, But even then, yeah, she she does kind of question later in life, she's going, well, you know, we did these things and we, we learned important things from them, and that's good, but I'm still not entirely comfortable uh, with my own actions there. Yeah, yeah. We have sort of talked about the Tropic of Serpents, um, but for those who have read A Natural History of Dragons, the Tropic of Serpents just came out in March. What can people look forward to as far as her adventures in that? Well, like I said, she goes to an area that's uh, kind of inspired by by West and Central Africa. And again, um, kind of even more than in the first book is getting caught up in in what's going on around her as she tries to do her research. Um, The book largely takes place in two different areas. One is a a sort of like dry savanna-ish kind of area. It's a country called Bayembe. Um, She actually looks at several different dragon species during the course of the book. Then a large chunk of the book is spent down in uh, Moulin, which is a place she references in the first book. Uh, It's a swampy area that goes by the ever-so-friendly moniker of the Green Hell. And 
I, I have to admit, when she first arrives down there, the description I put in was basically me channeling the time I spent in Costa Rica a number of years ago. I was in the rainforest there. So I kind of took Costa Rica and just channeled it for a paragraph or two saying, this is what it's like. Um, but uh, character-wise, you know, at this point, the first book, Isabella goes on this expedition by basically saying, well, I'm an artist. I could do, you know, life drawings. I could be an assistant to your expedition, um, you know, kind of going along with her husband and the others. And in the second book, she's part of the expedition kind of as a, a full member rather than under the guise of just being an assistant. And so she's kind of coming into her own more and saying, okay, you know, how do we go about making decisions about where we're going to go and what we're going to do? Um, and... Uh, you know, not always uh, succeeding necessarily at approaching things in the right way. She she does make some bad decisions during the course of it, but again, you know, learns from them um, and begins to develop her own uh, opinions very much on what is the proper way to go about doing this research uh, with regards to issues like how do you deal with the people around you? How do you do you, like shoot the dragons or not, etc. Um, you know, she's kind of developing her own ethic, basically. And there's also a lot more kind of pulp adventure kind of stuff, because at this point, Isabella is older and more confident and kind of increasingly inclined to do reckless things. <laughs> Very good. I was wondering if I could ask you uh, about your writing in sort of a personal way. Just, you know, all, all writers have struggles. And I'm just curious, is there a struggle that you're going through right now that you know the advice for you're just having a hard time doing what you need to do <laughs> uh actually i mean it, it's um there's lots of things that talk about writing process right and they, they give you all kinds of advice on different ways to approach things like the outlining versus you know by the seat of your pants um i have yet to find anything that actually talks about what to do when your process changes out from under you um i think let's see voyage of the basilisk uh, well, Tropic of Serpents was, I guess, my ninth novel published, and I have some I've written that have never been published. So I've written like more than a dozen books here, and the last couple of them, my process has been changing, which is deeply unnerving, because after like 10 or more, you go, okay, I know how I do this. What do you mean I don't do it that way anymore? Um, it used to be very much for me that it was, all right, a thousand words a day, um, seven days a week, uh, basically mush on through until the book is done, no days off for good behavior. And that was fine, and that worked. But starting especially with A Natural History of Dragons, and I, I kind of let myself go with this more in Tropic of Serpents and Voyage of the Basilisk, it's been, maybe I don't write today, and then tomorrow I write 2,000 words instead of 1,000, and then I won't write for a couple of days, and then it'll be like 1,500 words a day for a little while, and then I'll pause again. And it's unnerving, because at least when it was a thousand words a day, I could say, all right, we're aiming for a 90,000 word book. That means three months. Add in a little bit of time for safety. We're good. If I'm not writing a thousand words a day, then I don't exactly know how many days I'm going to need. Um, so I've been trying to figure out how to adjust to that. And it's uh, it's very much a work in progress. Have you found that your writing has improved if you allow yourself to have a day off and then um, maybe the next day jump into 2,000 words? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know whether this is kind of a permanent change for me or whether it's something specific to this series and the way that it works in my brain. But um, what I found was that it was kind of easier for me to um, 
you know, do a bit more of a, a flood at a time and just kind of go, okay, I'm in the mindset for this and I'm going to keep rolling and, and having stuff happen rather than saying, okay, I've got my thousand words, I'm done. Uh, I know with the, the Onyx court books, it was probably more necessary for me to kind of pick my way through one step at a time because they were very political um, and a lot of intricacies of, of people scheming and such. And it was really easy with those books. This happened to me a couple of times to kind of outrun what I had actually figured out about what I was doing. And then I would go, oh, crap, that's nope, that's going in the wrong direction. And now I need to rip it out. Um Whereas because the memoirs aren't that kind of interlacing structure with multiple point of view characters and, and lots of plots and, and such going on, I think it's a little easier for me to just go, and today I'm going to write the part where Isabella climbs up the volcano to look at the things up there. So I don't know, I'm just going to kind of keep on writing until I'm out of ideas. And lo and behold, it's like 2,500 words. Yeah, I, 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 it's always great to hear uh, a great writer like yourself talking about uh, talking about process. For what it's worth, Tim, I I, I pitch in my own um uh well in the uk we'd call it our tuppenceworth but um <laughs> it's um tim as you know my, my first my first two books came out as straight to audio from blackstone audio and they've picked up the third one too which hopefully will be coming out later this year but what i found was i wrote the first one and i got stuck three quarters of the way through so i wrote the second one which is about twenty five thousand words longer or thirty thousand words longer and i thought right I'm, i think i know what i'm doing here and I got stuck three quarters of the way through. The third one, I thought, oh, I, I've, got, I've got a handle on this thing now. I got completely stuck three quarters of the way through. And I <laughs> always get stuck three quarters of the way through. I'm thinking, what am I doing? I have no idea what to do now. And sometimes I just have to take time out and just like, okay, I, I, I'm not touching this. Because my, like my third one, um, I, I wrote, I would say, two thirds of it in about two and a half months, three months. But in reality, it's taken me a year to complete it. That's not writing over the period of a year, but just noodling with it over a period of time. I started off very religiously writing 2,500 words a day, six days a week, a day off for good behavior, and it was going fantastically well. I got stuck, so I had to drop it and come back to it later. So that's, an, that's another way. And, uh, you know, so long as you get an, so long as you get an end result, uh, it's all good, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the best process is the one that has a book at the end of it. Other than that, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I found a really good rhythm after work writing. And because then when I come home, I've got a new baby and I just, uh, I don't want to work at all. Um, but, but lately I've found, I've been going to doctor's appointments and um, and podcasting right after work. And then it's like, well, I don't want to write tonight. <laughs> And so mm -hmm. I, I need to apply the, the discipline of writing even when it's not comfortable or as easy for me. Um. Yeah, when I was in college, uh, my senior year, I kind of went through a span of time where uh, it was especially when I was writing my senior thesis and because I was an idiot attempting to write other stuff at the same time, like fiction. Um, I made myself do my thesis first because I knew that I would stay up stupid late to write the fiction. And, but if I wrote the fiction first, then I'd be like, oh, I don't want to work on the thesis tonight, and I would go to bed. That's that's good thinking. Yeah, I've 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 got uh, uh, my own version of that was uh, my 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 Xbox 360 got fried, so I had just had to get on with some writing. <laughs> <laughs> What's really unnerving is uh, every so often we've had like uh, problems with our internet connection, and you know I, I'm writing on my computer it's not any kind of cloud type thing and so there's no reason i can't write but there's a part of me that just sits there going what do you mean i i have to write without 
and internet can but how am i going to look things <laughs> up what do you mean i could look them up later no <laughs> just i'll, I'll look yeah, at my computer it, when it has no internet connection and go but what are you <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely so, some writers do not write on their their internet connected computer at all because otherwise mm-hmm. you're going to hear this voice through a megaphone shouting at you step away from the facebook or step away yeah. from your email you know uh and and you there is that kind of slightly nervy reaction oh have i got a review today or uh you know oh i need <laughs> to speak to my 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 friend about the party this weekend or whatever you know so <laughs> yeah well and especially i got in the habit when i was writing the onyx court books i got a little obsessive about language because the books take place in different time periods the first one is elizabethan second one is the english civil war in the 17th century and then you get the enlightenment in the 18th century and then the victorian one and though i didn't try to write in exactly period language i did make an effort not to use words or senses of words that were too modern and so I yeah. had the Oxford English Dictionary open in a tab for about four years straight, <laughs> you know, constantly <laughs> looking things up to see if they were in period. And so trying to write at any point without being able to check my language as I went was deeply disorienting. Well, yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that. And I think when you're, you know, I, I, I mean, I've written some, I suppose, um, period based, uh, well, almost like period based um um, kind of short short fictions, uh, one of which I was incredibly honoured to get a, a kind of positive review from Michael Moorcock on. But um, my ambition as a writer as of uh, now is to write a novel which contains the word anti-disestablishmentarianism at least once. <laughs> it reminds me of being so sad when I was writing, um, I guess it was A Star Shall Fall. I was like, Unfortunately, the phrase "deflagisticated air" wasn't coined until like 15 years after that book was taking place. I'm like, ah, I wish I could use the phrase "deflagisticated air." That was actually oxygen is what they were referring to, but they didn't have that word for it yet. Oh, and I just, I thought wow. that's such a fantastic phrase. Why can't I use it? Because it hasn't been well, invented yet. Well, there are there are there are plenty of uh, linguistic geeks out there, as probably as many as there are sci-fi geeks who who will spot an error like that immediately. I think Brandon Sanderson talks about stuff like that on his um, podcast. There's a there's an episode where they talk about that very thing, um, sort of anach- anachronistic language. Yeah, I don't know if that's when something. It gets very... that- it gets very funky when you're writing in a secondary world because you're like, well, what's anachronism if it's not our timeline? But if it throws the yeah. reader out of the story, it can still be a problem. Absolutely. Is that something you ever encounter in what you what you do, Tim, when in your writing? Kind of because you, you and I have had some discussion about kind of using um, certain kinds of words and uh, you know and and kind of science fictional universes. I mean, is it uh, do you have challenges in terms of how you use language in in a particular way when you're writing your stuff? Um, an early professor in college noticed that I use a lot of slang, and so he said, you know, don't do that because it's going to be outdated soon or something like that. So I try not to use slang um, unless I'm writing something that is in our time because I was writing fantasy with animals that talked, and they were using slang, and I guess it was strange. But, yeah, I, I struggle with that. You know, my main thing is making up words for things and and trying to not have them sound silly um so that's just trial and error i suppose yeah yeah well i uh, yeah i i i think uh be, being a father you know once once kai turns you know, 14 or 15 you're going to hear some completely new language as well you know and uh you know 
the, the kids uh, next generation on from me you know the things that used to throw me were were using a word like bad when they meant good you know and stuff like that you know it's a very uh, a very simple things like that um and the kids in my creative writing class although they're bulgarian their english their english is is fantastically good but they they use it a lot of american slang it's it's a kind of it's an american funded college uh, and you know most of it i i do get but sometimes i'm thinking well you know, I'll say to them, "What what does that word mean?" And uh, it, it's usually a, some drug re- drug related thing or something to do with with gangs. But uh, uh, you know, it, lang- language is a very um, it, it it morphs all the time. You know, and uh, it's kind of it's interesting to deal with that uh, particular challenge as a writer, uh, wouldn't you say, uh, Marie? When you're um, you know you're dealing with stuff that stuff that already has existed. But if you're writing in a contemporary idiom, you're 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 handling stuff that keeps changing, even even day to day. Yeah, well, I know um, the the whole slang thing. I uh, you know one of the ways around that, if you can pull it off, and that's easier said than done, is rather than using current slang, um, you know, kind of make up your own slang. But making up something that's actually going to sound real is hard. And it's kind of funny that certain things that we consider to be uh, kind of slang now. Um, I, I remember hearing at one point anyway that uh, a lot of the ways that things were phrased on the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that was yeah. know, Joss Whedon's idiom. But because Buffy became so popular, the things that he had made up for the way his characters spoke became things that people actually said. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, w- weirdly, there's a, there's a segue there because the actor who narrates my first two books was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a British actor called Robin Sachs. Um, sadly, he died last year, but uh, uh, he, he was a, a kind of young character in, in the in the early series there. But it was something about um, that. Uh, oh, slang. Yeah, and, and kind of TV series that uh, Joss Whedon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like one thing, this is probably going to sound really controversial, but uh, Battlestar Gal- Galactica, the word frack just doesn't work for me. Um, I've always thought it sounded slightly odd and I, I kind of I know what they mean, but uh, kind of it's like, oh, it's a bit clunky, that one. <laughs> See, that one works better for me than Farscape with Frell, because Frell just sounds too pretty to be a swear word to me. Like that doesn't right. sound plausible for something people would say when they're really bad. At least frack has the you know the the hard sound on the end of it that makes it sound actually like you're upset. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I I'm not a Farscape fan, so I've never even heard that one before. But it, it sounds rather pretty and elegant, but it doesn't sound yeah, exactly. like a swear word to me. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's pretty transparent with both of those words that it is hey we're on tv in a way that says we can't use the profanity people would actually use so we're going to use this very transparent replacement for it as opposed to coming up with some word that is kind of used in its own way instead of just being a gloss for a real word yes look look at me i'm being really naughty tee hee 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 yes it's that kind of thing yeah yeah well and it's just uh it's their way of getting around the whole, well, these characters probably would be swearing, but if we actually have them swear like that, we're going to get in trouble. So um, here's our solution. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's odd that there's, there's somehow a, a, a kind of um, a sort of invisible barrier around um, SF as if it's some kind of sacred cow where they can't actually swear or whatever, whereas in it, like a crime drama or whatever, you know, you'll hear street talk, you'll hear kind of real life, the way people actually speak. But somehow I've, I've encountered some sci-fi where people are allowed to speak as if they would normally. But somehow 
there's almost like a, a taboo against it. I don't know why. Well, I think some of it would depend on where is the show airing, because something that's on HBO is going to have a lot more real world profanity than something that's airing on, you know, network TV. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Have you guys ever read a book where it doesn't swear and then like halfway through there's a swear word? It Does it like throw you off or something? Whether it throws me off would depend on the context. Um, I, uh, you know, if it feels like it's being thrown in for shock value or something after having been avoiding it, then yeah, I'd probably be annoyed. Whereas if it's, oh, here's this character who has been fairly uh, clean spoken up until now, but things have gotten really bad. The moment where they actually step over into using language they've been avoiding could actually be a very good character moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, and I think, uh, you know, one area where that... Um, issue can can potentially arise is you know where you know uh you suddenly come across um i've been guilty of it on one occasion um was writing a slightly graphic sex scene which didn't really belong in the book and, and i got some feedback so i actually removed it um because it, it did get in the way really and i kind of mm -hmm. I, I wrote around it uh, uh and and i completely got where the comment came from i think yeah yeah that it actually doesn't work it does it takes you out of the the, the the kind of the flow but i think sex and and can sudden changes like that can do but i agree with you as well marie that it can suddenly give you a a flash on a particular character or something kind of really significant thinking whoa right that's interesting and it takes you in a, down a down a new, a new track yeah well in mentioning um sex scenes there was a series of blog posts i did a while ago which um minor little plug here i put it together as an ebook it's called writing fight scenes um mm -hmm. talking about uh i you know having violence in the story and how it gets depicted and actually there's a lot of sort of craft level issues that are very similar for sex scenes and fight scenes actually um both in terms of putting them into the story in a way that makes it feel like this actually does belong here versus oh now we're gonna take a sudden side turn into a completely different tone and also just the the words that you use to put it on the page how do you describe um you know bodies and movement and such without getting really repetitive or diverging into purple prose that is going to make the reader <laughs> laugh themselves sick or whatever um yes. But yeah, I think it's important to, uh, you know, either establish, um, you know, in, in whatever subtle fashion early on in the story that this will be the kind of tale in which that kind of stuff gets described graphically, or if it is meant to be a, a kind of tonal shift later on to make sure that the effect it's having is important enough to be worth that sort of shift. That, okay, this character who has been fairly nonviolent until now is suddenly, you know, like bludgeoning somebody to death with the nearest object. You need to really sell me on the notion that they've had that break where they go, I, they just go completely over the edge. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that, that brings me to something that I, I wanted to, to get a mention or ask you about uh, in relation to an actual history of dragons, too, because you, there's, a, there's a, a, probably more than one scene where you, um, it feels like a kind of tongue-in-cheek, um, almost like you're consciously heading towards, well, in the UK, we'd call it bodice ripper territory. But you <laughs> actually, you're, you you do it consciously and with, with a bit of humour. So you kind of like, we're heading towards bodice ripper, ripper but oh, no, it's not going to be that. But, you know, I found myself smiling. And uh, I just wondered if you were, did you consciously do that or did it just kind of emerge as a development of the of the character? I can't think of the um, a scene in particular, but there were there were some aspects of it to do with romance and 
you know, bedrooms and stuff like that thing going that direction, which was kind of entertaining and amusing, but without being silly, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, a lot of it did come out of the character because Isabel is sitting here going, well, I'm a natural historian. I have, in fact, like watched animals having sex because it's part of my work. <laughs> and so she's not as embarrassed about it as she ought to be for her society. But at the same time, because this isn't the normal first person narration where you're just kind of riding along, um, she is very consciously telling her story to an audience. And so she's not going to get detailed about things. She is going to, you know, be frank in a way, but at the same time drawing a curtain over things um, that she'll be very upfront about why, yes, I had sex with my husband. We were married. What did you think we did? Um, yes. But she's not yeah. going to tell you the details of it because that's her private life and you don't need to know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, there was, I, you reminded me of one one kind of little moment which I actually mention in my review, which will be on Amazing Stories magazine in. May 8th, uh, one blog a month for them. So I've, I've reviewed uh, the audio book. I, I, I hope people will go over and check that out too. It was something about she's sort of going out in, in society and you can just feel her kind of complaining about this dress that she's wearing. And I think she said it, it, it was, what did she say? Doing interesting things with my bosom, which uh, which was a, a lovely phrase. And it, again, it was another moment that just made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and, you know, without getting into too much detail, it was... Um experience I had of the the first time I was put into a corset and going wow I didn't even know that could happen <laughs> so that was sort of me channeling my own reaction there um but I will also say her <laughs> her attitudes are also a little bit informed by the fact that um it, this is sort of a thing that flies under some readers' radars, depending on whether or not they have the kind of personal familiarity to spot it. But um, the religion in uh, Scarlet and actually throughout most of Antiope, the continent, is actually based on Judaism rather than on Christianity. And uh, mm -hmm. my experience and, and my research have uh, kind of given me the sense that Judaism tends to have less of a complex around that topic than Christianity does. It's less of a like, oh my god, shameful, you know, it needs to happen, but let's not talk about it kind of thing. Um, that no, I mean, the, the religion basically says, yes, it is a wonderful thing to get married and have lots of sex with your spouse. And so because they are coming from that kind of background, she is going to be more upfront about it of saying, yeah, you know, this happens, it's a good thing. We should not try to pretend otherwise. Uh, Marie, you've just discounted the entire history of psychoanalysis, starting with uh, uh, Sigmund Freud, who himself was Jewish, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that this is by any means a, you know, blanket universal thing, etc. But uh, <laughs> it did at least give me a good justification for, um, you know, being a little bit less prudish about that and a little bit less uptight. Which I thought was good and it worked brilliantly for the book. That's great, guys. We're actually getting kind of long, so I want to wrap this up so we can make it a manageable download for our listeners. Thank you so much, Marie and John. You guys have been great. Um, swantower.com is Marie's website. And for John, it is bonemachines.wordpress.com. Marie's books, uh, she's got a bunch through Orbit, and um, these are these are the only ones with Tor, correct? Uh, no, the latter half of the Onyx Court series also came out from Tor, so A Star Shall Fall and With Fate Conspire. Okay. So A Natural History of Dragons and A Tropic of Serpents, or The Tropic of Serpents, are Marie's books, and John's books are Bone Machines and Callie's Kiss. Correct, John? Yeah, and uh, Babylon Slide, hopefully coming later this year. Okay. Very good. Uh, oh, I did want to mention Marie is going to be on a tour with 
Mary Robinette Kowal, correct? Yes. So it looks like Thursday, May 8th, which is the day we're going to release this because it go, coincides with John's audio review. Thursday, she'll be in Salt Lake City, Utah at Weller Bookworks. Saturday, May 10th, she'll be at Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego, California. And Sunday, she will be in San Francisco at Borderlands Books. You can find that information on her appearances tab on her website. Thanks again, guys. It's been great. Thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. It's been great, yes. And and it was was a, a delight to talk to you, Marie. And to you. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>